You're listening to Tone Vendors, the Sound Designers Podcast. Let's do this. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Tone Vendors. My name is Tim, and I will be your host today. Joining me is the sound crew from the film Judas and the Black Messiah. This is a terrific film about the story of Fred Hampton, chairman of the Illinois Black Panther Party, and his betrayal by a friend who turned out to be an FBI informant. Deputy Chairman Fred Hampton of the Illinois Black Panther Party. Repeat after me. So let's introduce you to our guests. First up, we have Rich Bologna. He was a supervising sound editor and re-recording mixer on Judas. His past credits include The First Purge and The Hunt, so he's been responsible for scaring the crap out of me on multiple occasions. <laughs> uh, it's great to have you on Tone Benders, Rich. Welcome. Thank you. It's great to be here. We also have Marlo Taylor, who is the production sound mixer on this film. Welcome to the show, Marlo. A pleasure being here with you guys. Marlo is speaking with us from onset of his current project in an extremely rural part of Virginia. His internet connection is proving to be very unreliable at best. We will soldier on, but please excuse the quality of his audio for this talk. You may know Marlo from his past credits, including Queen and Slim, Hard Kill, and The Kings of Summer. Fingers crossed we can pull this out, Marlo. I'm in the middle of nowhere, man. We also have with us today Skip Livesey. You can hear Skip's full backstory on our episode 76. You all know his work on all-time great sound films like Roma, Gravity, No Country for Old Men. Welcome back to Tone Bender, Skip. Thanks, nice to be here with my friend Rich. Good to see you, Tim. <laughs> Excellent. So it's not too often that we have a film that has a scene in it, like Judas and the Black Messiah, where Fred Hampton makes the big speech and has the call and response and the crowd interaction going on. This scene plays perfectly to the eye. When you're watching it, it seems like the right amount of voices you're hearing compared to the size of the crowd, but it feels like a million voices chanting back at him. It's got a really cool, uh, larger-than-life feel to it. And I'm wondering if we can kind of dig into that scene and how you went about it. Marlo, I assume most of that was recorded on set, correct? Can you kind of walk us through how you mic'd that up? Yeah, that was really a lot of fun. Um, we had to make sure we were covering Fred at the podium. So we utilized the podium mic in front of him, which, you know, at his volume, he was destroying, but that's what an old mic would do. Then there's uh, plants on the podium, and he's wired. And then there's two booms on Fred. <laughs> two booms on Fred. Uh, and then there's a couple mics spread out through the crowd, because I remember Rich saying, what are these two tracks? What are these two tracks, you know? And then we had crowd mics, you know, for the crowd. And it's, it's crazy because we were so, I was so excited about that day. And then when we started to shoot, we shot the first scene and it was crowd quiet, only Fred. And I was like, no, no. So I, I, I run over to Shaka and I said, Shaka, can we, you know, would you mind, can we just do one take where the crowd just, they react with, with Fred. And so we just get that just organic vibe, like when you're in an old Southern church, you know, first AD was kind of like, no, this is a, can be a bad idea because we'll never have him clean. And to get him to be able to redo this speech in ADR, we may never get this moment correct. So we're taking that chance, but 
I looked at Shock and I was like, I, I think we got him, man. We, we, I think it, it'll, it'll work. But I had to say that. I think I was like, it'll work. So he was like, let's do it. And then when we did it, it was just like, Shaka was just like, he just got really pumped. And then like, we had a moment where it was just us three talking. It was Daniel, you know, myself and Shaka. And Daniel said, he's never as an actor ever felt that kind of energy and that kind of reply, you know, from the crowd. He said, and that's what driven him. Because Daniel said, I started making up stuff because the crowd was just going back and forth with me. He said, it was just like, I felt like an artist, like at a concert, you know? But that's that's the vibe that I wanted him to have. And I knew, I felt in my heart, it would also enlighten his speech. And it would just give him more robust, more energy to do it. And, and it did. And when I looked over to my right, I could see Fred Hampton Jr. stand up when it was when that speech was going down, which I was like, wow, I, I, okay, this is really working. And in the end, when, you know, Rich got it and went all through it and then Skip got it and they did, their, you know, their magic to it. It actually worked out, so I'm I'm just really really happy. You should be happy. The scene is quite an achievement. Rich, you were the re-recording mixer on the sound effects and Foley, and Skip, you were doing dialogue and music. So how did you take all the assets that Marlowe recorded on set and build it into the final scene in the picture? That was also time consuming, but of course, and we were able to create several layers of crowd reactions for the whole sequence. And on my side of the desk, I'm doing dialogue and music. Rich has got his hands full with all the, all the, everything else. I had a bunch tied to my side. I had basically um, fairly dry Daniel track and then with crowd. And, but then I also had a wider track that was Daniel and crowd mixed together. So I created on my side, a sort of two sets of Daniel, uh, one quite dry and the other with crowd. And then I also had some additional reactions just, just to make one kind of even layer out of all my stuff. And then Rich had on his side, he had a whole bunch of other things. He had sync takes. He had, um, you had a whole set of crowd reactions with Daniel on them as well or no? Yeah, you had a lot of really good sounding production takes from the audience that were wider where I came in pinpointing individual members and claps and like, more close range audience members and just specifics to what Daniel was saying. The, the loop group did a, actually a bang up job on that they scene because they, they like took what was there, which was already, I think 80% there and just kind of gave it that extra 20% that, that really kind of was the cherry on top. And the music also came from set. So yeah. they recorded a little bit of music and it's in some parts of Daniel's speech and not in others. But there was enough of it that I could fill it out, fill out the gaps and create a complete set of that just from production track. And the um, scoring crew also gave us a little bit of track, which I which I needed to use in a few spots. But basically, that whole scene came from, with the exception of the group, that yeah. came from location. It was very satisfying for me to walk into the room and hear that percussion thing that Skip looped and then all augmented because I was like, we're going to have to re-record stuff. And he was like, no, it's done. It's fine. <laughs> so, I mean, that was just one of those small victories. But that scene, I've said it before, but it was, I think, to, to Skip's credit, he, you know, I was in the weeds at that point editorial. I, we had gone through so many iterations of the movie and the picture had changed so much that I was just kind of like, okay, well, this is the version that we're at. And I think Skip had fresh eyes and ears, and he was like, this is the scene, man. And 
It is. I mean, we've talked about it a lot, but it really does kind of pull that film together. And it's an amazing performance from Daniel. Like, I think he deserves the Oscar just for that scene. But yeah. it it was really, it, it kind of opened my eyes because I was like, yeah, you're absolutely right. And we spent a lot of time with it. And we we didn't really do much crazy Atmos stuff in that, but we did a lot of Atmos in that scene, which, you know, you wouldn't think to put the crowds up and we just wanted to make it as immersive as we possibly could. And I think Skip kind of just like really was like, this is what we got to really jam on. And we did a lot independently. And then we did a lot in the two of us. And by the time Shaka saw it, he was just like, wow. He said, wow. <laughs> so oh, we, wow. Okay. We can, I know what to do. I know just what to do. Yeah. It was also, um, I don't know how you guys work, but I, I kind of like to do the hardest thing first because everyone's worried about the hardest thing, uh, including me. And uh, I kind of like to um, set everything out and kind of have all the parts and try to figure out like what things can go together so that I can maybe have a complete set here. What are the components that are missing? And let me try to find some of those. And our team can go look for some stuff, some extra takes or extra reactions. And then I have to say there's kind of a desperation of, you know, is this going to work? How do I have good record, good enough recordings to make this scene work? Mm -hmm. And there's nothing more um, satisfying is not the right word, but uh, it's more like a relief that, yes, we have good parts. Yes, this can work. Yes, Rich, come and look at this. Are we, are we on the right track here? Yes. Yeah. And, of course, it was clear to me that this was the thing that we had to completely deliver and be great at. And... And it was really fun to invest the time, sort it, go through the desperate period, and then come out ahead. It was it was really great. Yeah. It was a big kind of deal because there was a point in which, because we knew we couldn't get large groups together for the COVID and loop group and all that, there was talk of getting a whole group of friends together that Shaka could put in his backyard to do stuff. Because, you know, Skip came up to me and he was like, hey, like, what's up with this scene? And... I knew that he did Malcolm X and there's some amazing scenes in that. So I'm like, we got to get the game up to that level. But our hands were a little tied just with, in terms of like going out and renting a church and recording a bunch of people. Like we couldn't do that, obviously, but it does speak to the amount of stuff that was shot because you, you had a lot to work with, you know, mm -hmm. and it did come together really well. So we're going to get a little deeper into the editing and mixing process for that scene. But while we've got Marlo here and before his phone kicks out again, Marlo, what mics were in your arsenal while you were recording that scene? So throughout the crowd, we mostly always use chefs. We're all about the chefs. So we had the chef CNC and a stereo set out in the crowd. And then we had a AMS ST250, but I don't know if I printed that or not, but I also had that, which is an amazing mic. And then we had a couple Sankin Cubs just sitting around. And then we had Sankin Cub on the podium with him. And then he was wired also with a Sankin Cost 11D. And then we had the podium mic also hot. And then we had a Sennheiser MK60 on him, which I feel still the 60 takes a beating. It's like the, the brother to the 416, but he takes a beating, but he has a, a warm, a smoother tone to him. So he's not really too brittle or too harsh when you yell at him. So we had that on him and then a Shep's uh, Cement 5U. But the Chef Seaman 5U was adding a little bit more high in to it. But the MK60 kept it warm. And it'll, it'll take a beating. Like, you can yell in that thing, and it's nice. So 
that's what we mostly kept on him at the podium. And he lost his voice, you know, doing it, which, which was awesome that we caught it. So that was another way that reason we weren't going to be able to do it again. So what I did was to save him. We ripped out our Pro Tools and we took his stuff and I said to feed the Pro Tools live, Pro Tools recorded it, and then we did a playback. So then once we were totally done with Daniel at the podium, then we could just shoot with a little bit more crowd reaction and then they could just look at him, but he wasn't constantly losing his voice because we still had one more scene to do in the church, you know? So now his voice is like almost gone, you know? So uh, Shaka was really, really happy that I thought of that. And that's just the kind of, that's just the kind of sound mixer I am. I'm always trying to think of how to still capture the performance from the actor, but give the director what he wants in a vision and try to make you feel like it's really real, like we're really getting that moment. But also I knew he had more to do looking ahead on the sides. And I was like, this guy's gonna, he's going in so hard, he's gonna lose his voice. So that all worked out fine. And then Daniel even thanked me. He's like, thanks, man, that was really cool. Cause I don't know how many more times I could have done that, you know? Cause every time I was with the crowd, I kept getting more energy from the crowd. So I kept getting louder. I don't know if it made it in the movie. He beats the podium in the movie. and makes the crowd repeat him. And he just goes, no, 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 no. And, you know, and then they go, ah, ah. you know, so he, that was the kind of, you know, that was the vibe that the crowd gave him back, you know, and he just rolled with it. So that was a really exciting day, a nervous day too, but really exciting. Yeah. Yeah. Was the plant mic provided by you or was that a prop? No, the, the plant mic was actually provided by props. We went through them all. And so we figured out which ones from him worked. Luckily for our props guy, I, all of his plants worked. He just gave us all of them and said, well, whichever ones you guys like, you think sound better. They all fit the period in the year. Just pick one. So we picked one we thought would take the best abuse and also look well. And he was like, that's great. And we put it up there and we made it hot, you know. I just like to capture that stuff because I, it's there and it's real and that's what it sound like then. And sometimes I know these guys can do magic and just add a hair of it with the other sound we have and, you know, make you really feel that, how you remember it and sound it back in the day. So so did you guys use the plant mic in that for the mix or? Yes, we did. <laughs> oh, wow. <laughs> Big and bold. <laughs> So now you've got boundary mics, boom mics, lav mics, plant mics, the mics on the band that are in the scene, the percussive bands. How do you take this huge amount of elements and blend it into a cohesive scene that doesn't just feel like chaos? The thing that helped a lot with the mix part, and Skip did a lot of this, was just spreading things out. You know, I mean, like, there's a lot going on in the tracks, mostly from production, and there's that kind of pitfall that you can fall into which is like it's just all piling up and it sounds harsh and it sounds crazy and and I think we were even initially aware of that and Skip was like let's just carve out these frequencies overall like we just kind of blanket duct some some frequencies that can get harsh but I think just spreading things out really helped that scene and we did a lot of it and it really I think it just technically helps because you're like not going to pile up on the same kind of stuff but also just emotionally like i always felt like i was in that room at the end of the mix and it it continually gives me goosebumps just because you're like man i'm in that room with these people you know so mm. we did we it's a it's a very dynamic and wide thing that hopefully feels immersive to people you know you mentioned you put stuff up on the ceiling was it chance or like kind of emulating it bouncing off the ceiling or what was the thought there 
I mean, it was, it's a perspective thing. Cause I remember Skip, you told me, you're like, just start putting stuff up. And the camera angle is actually like the opposite. You're looking up at Fred. I think it, it goes both ways. It kind of just spreads things out. So that you feel like you're in the room. It doesn't even matter if it's in the ceiling or below or whatever. It's just kind of like people all around. Well, there was a whole like two tracks of loop group that I just kind of popped up there and you're doing stuff with the verbs and stuff mm -hmm. like that. It really doesn't even matter, like, if it's accurate. Like, obviously, people aren't on the ceiling, but it just spread things out, and it felt good. Like, it just felt like, okay, like, we want to hear things immersively, and we use the Atmos, I think, more in that scene than we probably did in most of the other scenes. Yeah. The Atmos does give you a lot more channels, so you actually have a lot more horsepower. Yeah. Of course, you know, so you don't have to worry as much about things piling up because you have this natural separation, which is really, really helpful. And also in that particular scene, we never really got that loud in that scene, even though it is very dynamic. Yeah. It isn't really like uh, yeah. the shootout scene later. And that's really because of the Atmos, I'd say. Yeah. How are you treating the actual speech? I had like a consistent track, which was his love, I, I would say, the plant mic as well. I mix those together to create like, this is the close up sound of Daniel. So. Whenever I needed to be very clear with what he was saying or accentuate the cut where we would cut in close, I could raise those microphones and lower the other tracks. So it really helps you feel like a perspective shift, basically. And then in the other tracks, we had the audience reactions mostly had the concurrent tracks. So they had Daniel in them as well. Just by using those two components, uh, you have an event, basically. You have the foreground and the background. And then I added, I took one or two of the main microphones and used an altiverb. And I'm a little old fashioned, I guess, but what I like to do is make a track, which is, and then print it. So I audio suited a track of altiverb, a stereo pair. So this way I could have a, a sort of ambience track that wasn't shot, but sounded like it was shot. And I can use that and I can change the perspective. Like if you if you cut closer, you lower that reverb track a bit and raise the dry track or the, the actual source mics. Or and then if you want to be wider, you can use more of that. And then of course you can pan that around so you get the advantage of having the reverberation. Um, like when the shots say Daniel's on the right and the whole room is, is on the left of the shot, I can put that reverb sound over there to make it sound like it's splashing into the room. It's a really fun exercise. I also used live reverb as well. So mm -hmm. the old fashioned send and return to, uh, I guess it was revive, I think I was using. So it, that you couldn't put enough reverb on that scene. <laughs> yeah. It, just, yeah. it makes the room bigger and more fun. Yeah, stupid inside baseball stuff. But there, <laughs> when we when Skip and I were mixing the, the foreign, the M&E, and like <laughs> we pulled we pulled everything out that was in English and it was like, it was the most boring thing I've ever heard. Cause it was <laughs> like, you realize like how much stuff was shot and how much Skip was doing. And I think to the point where Skip and I actually had to go back in and record shakers <laughs> and like percussion yeah, we did on the fly, which hopefully I'll get to see that movie in, in live mic in the room. <laughs> it definitely loses a lot of energy. I'll say. <laughs> well, the film does have a lot of energy. It's got a very specific 
visual aesthetic to it, but it also feels like Shaka King, the director, came into it with a sonic aesthetic too, because the songs in particular in the film, they feel like they're really baked into the identity of the story. Like they weren't last minute decisions. They were there from the start. Is that the case? It was one of those things just style-wise where it was really exciting because you know, Shaka's very, very into music and sound, but he was very adamant about certain choices musically. And they were in the movie from the get-go as far as like what I was getting, but it, it really set a tone. And there's, you know, there's an elegance to this movie, I think, with the music that gave me a lot of inspiration for how the sound should work in a way. Like I just, you know, it's the same way as those old 60s cars. It's like they're elegant, beautiful machines. And the music had that kind of feel to it. And it really, it put me in the right direction. And it was just fun, like Skip and I both like jazz. It was just fun to deal with that kind of material and to see how it evolved and informed the movie. It was a big deal for Shaka. I mean, he talks about how he would bring the opening cue inflated tier to pitch meetings and and have it for studio execs and be like this is how my movie feels you know so he's very attuned to to music especially but also to like what we were doing and and really gave it the time and attention it deserved so he was a treat to work with in that regard and and i think the music kind of gave me cues into like the world he was trying to build you know well, the film has a lot of big kind of set pieces for sound. There's the headquarters shootout, the breaking in of the apartment at the end, uh, the, the church scene that we spoke about already. But the film also has some incredibly quiet moments in it. Mm -hmm. The scene when he goes and visits the mother of uh, one of his comrades who's been killed. Right. The ambience almost disappears entirely in that kitchen. And it's just those voices. Yeah. Super quiet conveying immense amount of emotion. Was that the plan to keep it super quiet the whole time? Well, I think it follows kind of the music arc of the film in the sense that there's a lot of music probably up until like the fourth reel of the movie. And then it sort of drops off as far as, especially in terms of like the jazz kind of needle drop world. But I think it was, I'm sure it was a concerted effort from Shaka to kind of make it you know, to pull the air out of the movie a little bit. And and I'm, you know, th obviously those are the types of scenes where those are ultimately harder sometimes for us to deal with than like a big shootout scene because you got nothing to hide behind. But like Shaka does have a lot of nuance with this film and he, it was important for him to show Fred both as the public figure that people know him as which he, you know, Daniel does an amazing job at, at portraying that, but also is just like a human being that has a, a wife and like has his own problems. So those scenes I think are very powerful and they're they're stark, but they're important for the film. But I, I think you got to say hats off to Marla because yeah. the, the quiet scenes in the movie, it's it's all Marla. Yeah, yeah, yeah. A little bit of Foley, but it's yeah. just a bit of room tone, but Marla did and his crew did a great job on those scenes because we have really... A robust, full track to work with there, and it made that all pleasure. Mm -hmm. The woman was really—I think she was kind of nervous, but she she had such a nice voice. And but I think the key to the scene was was Shaka. The way Shaka went in and just and told her, you know, I just want you to be like this. So like all what he was saying to her, she just really went there, and I, it's just the magic that he said to her. And then you know we just made our little adjustments. 
because she was really speaking really soft. So that was the other thing was just trying to like still get her up at a decent level and then could I control and, and balance her out some more, you know? And then Daniel, I remember that scene because he was stirring, uh, yeah. which I don't know what these guys did. And I know, but he's, he's stirring in a cup and I was just like, oh man, you, <laughs> <laughs> you know, because this, the room was really that quiet, like Skip said, you know? Right. So when he's getting the coffee or the sugar, I, I remembered, I, uh, you know, and my wife says, oh my gosh, you're such a sound nerd, you know, but I could still remember what is it, over, you know, two, a year, over a year now, guys, I remember him stirring in a cup. And I'm just going, oh, my gosh. And he's trying to be cool about it, but he was still clanging, man. Yeah. You know, it's a teacup with a spoon, you know. So, but it, it still worked. You know, I, I, in my ears, it was still cool. But, I mean, now to hear what just what you know, Skip just said, you know, then it, it must have really, really worked. But that was the only thing I was worried about because it was that quiet. Yeah, I mean, I think the only note on that scene was there was like, you know, a scene in the kitchen was like, I added a little distant traffic and like a fridge. <laughs> and I think Skip was like, lose the fridge. Like, we got to have this as quiet as possible. And I think that was the right note. I got to say, in my, in my career, the amount of time I've spent removing fridge hum <laughs> right, why from the it? track, and then the effects people come right back in. If you're in the kitchen, if you're anywhere near the kitchen, there is going to be a fridge hum somewhere. <laughs> and I'm like, okay, well, all right, I just spent 15 minutes filtering that out of there. <laughs> just to have you add your better fridge. <clears throat> So basically, we should just leave the fridge on for you next time, Skip. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you very much for talking to us today. Uh, as I said, I really enjoyed the film. Hopefully, we'll have you on again sometime in the future. Thank you, Tim. Thank you. Hey, thank you so much, Tim. It was a pleasure being here with you guys. Later. Film Bitters is produced by Timothy Muirhead, Renee Coronado, and Teresa Morrow. Theme music is by Mark Strait. Send your emails to info at tonebenderspodcast.com. Follow us on Twitter via at the Tonebenders and join Tonebenders Podcast on Facebook. Support this podcast. You can use our links when you shop with Amazon or B&H or leave us a tip. Just go to tonebenderspodcast.com and click the support button. Thanks for listening. Marlo, in the summer, there was a Facebook uh, production sound mixer chat going on that I believe you were taking part in. And oh, wow. my brain's a little fuzzy, but I think it was you that talked about how you like to uh, deliver a case of beer to the other departments every once in a while, just so yeah. they'll be on your side. That was you? Yeah. Do you want to just talk about me. this uh, theory of uh, production sound <laughs> mixing here? Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, so usually like when we're, when we're in town or we go different shows, you know, it's, it's hard to kind of to break the ice in. A lot of times, not saying that all sound mixers are, you know, grumpy, but a lot of sound mixers are serious. There's a lot of pressure on us. We want to try to deliver for the post team, whether that's Rich or Skip or whatever. And we know if we don't quite get it right, it makes it harder for those guys. And you, you just don't want, you don't want anyone in your sound world to have a harder time. So, you, you know, so usually when you need stuff on set or you need favors, you know, you need a power from electric, you know, or you need a courtesy flag over you because you're in the middle of the desert. I'm doing a Liam Neeson movie. I'm in the middle of a desert, you know? So what can you do to just kind of break the ice? You know, I don't really, I don't drink at all, but most guys, you know, drink beer, you know? So we'll just drop off a case on their tailgate. So we'll, we just do that as like a courtesy or like a thank you for the week, you know, for helping sound department out and getting the sandbags or whatever we need it, you know? 
And you find that that breaks a lot of ice and it goes a long way, you know, and then you'll find that guys will go, they go out of their way to take care of you or to run your extra line or get a putt-putt out for you when they were like, we're not bringing a putt-putt out here at all, you know, but the next thing you know, sound has a putt-putt, you know, so those kind of things. Uh, and it's just being curious, man. You got to remember people are people and we're all there to try to do a good job, you know, so, you know, the last thing you want to be doing is yelling at somebody because he didn't get you to stay here quick enough to your cart, you know. Yeah, your cart might be dying. You know, maybe you may have asked four times and still didn't, didn't get a line, but yelling doesn't really help him. So I do that a lot on shows. Um, but yeah, that does really work. It's just a, a warmer, you know, handshake between departments. 